Please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, located on uh, page 977 in your pew Bibles. Stand with me as we read God's holy word. Let's read verse 34 through 9-1. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what could anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that kingdom of God has come with power. May God bless his reading of his holy word. Please have a seat. Have you ever asked yourself what German pastors did in in Germany when Hitler rose to power in the 1930s and 40s? Turns out it's very complicated, but there there was a lot of division within the church, with some pastors actually aligning themselves with the Nazi government and praising the Fuhrer, saying things from the pulpit, and this is an actual quote from a pastor who said, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. By the end of 1930s, seminaries were complaining that over half of the students that they were graduating had aligned themselves with the Nazis. But not every German pastor of that time bowed in submission to this rise of an evil government. One notable example, and you may have heard of him, was a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pacifist minister who nevertheless felt compelled to take action against Hitler and his party. He spoke up against the Nazis. He was a very outspoken opponent of them from the pulpit. And because of that, he got barred from his church and his books were banned. But that didn't deter him. A couple of years later, Bonhoeffer decided that he would join the Nazi secret service and work as a double agent to topple the government from the inside. He worked there to help rescue Jews and bring them out of Germany to Switzerland. And he even was part of a big plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. That was a failed plot, and he and his other co-conspirators were arrested and sent to the concentration camps. And there, Diedrich Bonhoeffer spent years preaching to the inmates. And he was also sitting there writing books, and he wrote many uh, big books, including The Cost of Discipleship. And if you've never read that, I highly encourage you, get that book, The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And in that book, he wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the things of this world, abandon the attachments of this world. For Diedrich Bonhoeffer, this wasn't just a book. This wasn't just words that he was suggesting other people live. This was his life. And that call to discipleship, to follow Christ, would ultimately take his life. 
In fact, a month before Germany surrendered in World War II, he was hanged as a Christian martyr. And his final words was that this was the beginning of his life, a life with the Lord that he gave everything to follow. The world might look at a person like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and see a man who lost everything. He lost his job and his freedom and his life. But God knew that even as a loser, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a keeper because he was saved and he was justified before God and he retained what was truly important. So as we continue our, this passage in Mark 8, we, we, change, uh, we see that Jesus has just changed their expectation, the disciples' expectation of what the Messiah would do. And now he's going to change their expectation of what following the Messiah would entail. Jesus gathers all, his, all of his father, followers around him, and he probably gives them the hardest sales pitch in all of history. He says this, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must do three things. You have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. It's not really appealing. Listen to that. Let's, let's not overlook how ugly and crude the imagery of this statement was. The disciples were not associating the cross with Christ at this point. What were they associating it with? The Roman occupation. In the time, lifetime of Jesus alone, 30,000 Jews were crucified in Israel. 30,000. It was not uncommon for them to be walking on the road and seeing people hanging up on crosses, hearing the screams and the moans and the suffering and the dying. And so the disciples would have seen people just struggling to carry that enormous cross beam on their death march to the place of their execution. And so when Jesus says words like this, take up your cross and follow me, the first thing that comes to their mind is that's the first steps to suffering and pain and death. Follow me and you'll suffer. That's not a popular sentiment. In the church today, a lot of churches really try to downplay that. In fact, there's a popular movement called the prosperity gospel. Some of you may have heard of it. And the prosperity gospel really denies that a true Christian life, a good Christian life, has any suffering whatsoever. If you're a true Christian, you shouldn't have suffering. And in fact, this movement says that just to get whatever you want in life, to get all the good things in life, all you have to do is to name it and claim it in your prayers. Just pray a special prayer, and you name and claim that wealth, and God will hear that special prayer, and he will deliver to you, like Santa Claus, all the goods and wealth and prosperity that you ever wanted. The prosperity gospel doesn't ask you to give up anything, but it tempts you with more material goods and wealth. But look at this passage here. We don't see any hints of a prosperity gospel in Jesus' call to discipleship. Paul would later explain to the church at Galatia that as a follower, he had surrendered his claim on his own life when he had given it to Jesus. Paul said this, he said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Jesus is telling the crowds, what he is telling us here in this passage is that we have to put to death the idol of our self-centered lives. It's not about us when we follow him. 
I know we've said that before, but we have to keep repeating it. It's not about guiding ourselves, not trying to fulfill every desire in our life and doing whatever we think is good. Rather, Jesus redeemed us with his blood, and so we are his to command. And I think that's agonizing for the sinner sometimes, even, even after salvation, when we still feel that pull to be in charge. My son Casey, every time I unbuckle him and go to lift him out of the, the van, he's like, no, 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 Dad, I can do it. I can do it. There's that, that, that independence, right? And you want to kind of foster that. But I don't need any help. I don't need you to tell me what to do. And there's, there's a point where you have to nip that in the bud and say, well, yes, I'm still your dad. I'm still the one who commands you. Christ is still the one who commands us. He's the one that I answer to. And that's a daily struggle sometimes. It's a daily struggle to follow Christ, especially when things get difficult. But what Jesus wants us to truly understand, what we're getting ourselves into when we answer the call to discipleship. We're taking up our cross. We're taking up the pain. Not the pain of our normal daily lives, of our struggles, of a headache or whatever. But we're taking up the pain of surrendering our lives saying, not my will, but Lord, yours be done. What do you want me to do today? Should be the first prayer we pray in the morning. It's a standard joke in our culture that successful people sell their soul to the devil to get ahead in life. I don't know if you ever heard about that, but I think we sometimes say, man, what, what do they have to sell to get all that? Anytime we hear that, it makes us think about how valuable our soul is to us. Maybe you've engaged in a little bit of a mental calculation going, what would I trade for my soul? Hopefully the answer is nothing. You sometimes think about that when you hear stories about people who've sold their soul to the devil because they want to get this or that. What would you sell in exchange for your soul? Well, pop culture doesn't understand whenever it tells you one of those stories of of somebody who sold their, their soul for something is that we have already done it. We've already sold our soul through sin. We come into this world already with our soul firmly in the grasp of hell. Every sin we perform further damns us as we trade the things of God for the temporary, disposable happiness of our own pursuits. This is why Jesus in this passage goes on to ask rhetorical questions about whether it's more beneficial to receive the whole world, everything you could ever possibly imagine, if the exchange was your own soul. He's pointing out that they're not only in danger of doing this, but they've already done it. They've they've already had the freedom to indulge in everything they've wanted. Every sinful notion that could ever pop into their minds, they could go ahead and indulge it, and they have already done that. And then he asks, what has that ever gained you? What has that ever gained you? At the end of your life, when you breathe your last breath, what will that gain you? Knowing that where your soul is, there you will be for eternity. It's a lesson in spiritual economics, ultimately asking us what is worth the most to you, either your so-called happiness or your soul. It makes me think of Steve Jobs, the, the founder of Apple, one of the richest men in the world. In fact, when he died in 2011, his net worth was $10.2 billion. He took not a penny of that with him. In fact, when he found out he had cancer, 
He threw money at doctors like crazy to try to cure it and try to overcome it. In fact, he threw money at doctors so that he could jump ahead on organ transplant lists, feeling like his wealth could buy him that advantage. And yet, he still died. He couldn't even save his own life with all that money, never mind his soul. But what if? What if there was a way to truly save what was important? And what if the way to do that was to lose what you previously thought was the most important thing in life, was the most important point in your whole life? Again, Jesus turns our understanding of how we live upside down when he says that keepers are losers and losers are keepers. Those who risk everything to follow Christ, who risk their treasure, their safety, their security, their worldly satisfaction, will find that they actually come out ahead with the gifts of eternal life and peace, a crown of glory, true purpose, and real forgiveness. We see a lot of examples of this in the Bible. Abraham, you might recall back at the beginning of his story, was a fabulously wealthy man for the time. He was really comfortable. He had everything, the flocks, the wealth, the herd. He had it all set up, and yet God called him to move, to give some of that up, and to move away to Canaan, to surrender his safety and his security. Abraham took up his cross and followed God. Jeremiah was a youth who had, had the, the vigor of youth, who had all of his health, and God called him and said, I want you to be my prophet to a people who will not listen to you. And Jeremiah took up his cross and he followed God, and that road was hard. He fell into captivity and exile into Egypt. And after a lifetime of telling people to turn to back to God, he wasn't listened to. Every one of the apostles, save Judas, would take up their cross in the years after Jesus. And they would find that that road would lead them to suffering, ridicule, rejection, imprisonment, and for 10 of the 12 disciples, martyrdom. It was death. The disciples didn't retire a plan with a nice condo and a neighborhood association. But if you could bring all of them here today and ask them if taking up their, Christ, their cross and following Christ was worth it, everyone would say absolutely it was because they lived it. In all of the stories we have and the jokes where somebody sells their soul to the devil, the ending usually is a form of tragedy. Usually that person realizes that they gave away the most important thing and what they got back was usually a trick or usually was just too small in return. The person realizes that they've made a terrible mistake. But in Mark 8, Jesus offers us a different ending to that story. For those of us who had already sold our souls, we have the opportunity to gain them back and keep them forever. I think that's a great hope for those who are lost. And it's a great encouragement for those of us who are found to be reminded that no matter what we go through in this life, the cost of following Christ is nowhere near as great as the reward we will gain one day. You probably already know this. But the original manuscripts of the Bible did not have chapter and verse designations. Those were added later by scholars who wanted an easy way to say, oh, let's go to this passage or let's go to this verse. So they usually did a pretty good job, but they, I think they kind of failed here because they put the first verse of chapter 9 
in, in 9, it really should have gone at the end of chapter 8 because it was concluding a talk Jesus was giving here. The separation doesn't make sense there. And I think that, that actually causes a lot of people when they read Mark to kind of blip over the first verse in chapter 9. In any case, after Jesus outlines the cost of discipleship and he goes over the worth of your soul, Jesus wraps this up with kind of a cryptic prophecy that prophesied to the crowd, that some of the crowd at least would be present to be witness to the kingdom of God coming in power. Now here we go into interpreting biblical prophecy. I know that the adult Sunday school class just wrapped up Daniel, and you're interpreting a lot of prophecy there, and it's always very tricky and very hard. In fact, quick plug here, come to my Savory Scripture seminars in July. We're going to be talking about how to interpret the prophetic books and how that we need to be very cautious when we do that. Because obviously, Christian denominations, we don't all agree on how you interpret prophecy. Well, what I, what I always advise is that we need to be very careful, we need to deliberate, and we need to take a long time before we come to any firm conclusions on what a prophecy says and what it means. Some people say that this verse right here actually makes Jesus a liar. That because it seems to flow from the last verse in chapter 8, where Jesus is talking about coming again, his second coming. And then he goes right into saying, and some of you will still be alive when the kingdom of God comes in power. So some people think, well, Jesus obviously lied here. He was saying they were, some of them were going to be still alive when the second coming was going to happen. And obviously the, the, that crowd has long since passed on. But since this hasn't happened, and, and because we believe the Bible to be really true, we have to look at some other answer here for the prophecy. In fact, I think most biblical scholars in doing some research on this say that this is referring to one of the upcoming events that was shortly going to happen in the, in the kingdom in which a notab notable manifestation of power would mark the arrival of God's kingdom in this world. So it could be a few things, and I'll leave it up to you to kind of deliberate and decide what that might be. But possibilities include the transfiguration, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, the resurrection or the day of Pentecost, coming of the kingdom of God. Theologian R.C. Sproul argued strongly that this most likely pointed at the future, future destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which finally broke the church away from Judaism and finally broke the church away in a way that marks the, the kingdom of God fully establishing itself in this world. But no matter what interpretation you take for this first verse, the most important thing to see here is that Jesus is offering encouragement to his listeners. His listeners that he just told, take up your cross of suffering and pain and follow me if you want to be my disciple. But on top of that, he then goes on to offer them encouragement. He knows it's a very heavy thing to ask them to deny themselves repeatedly every day in their walk with Christ. But what he wants them to take away from this speech is that their struggles will all end in glory, that they will not be in vain. I once had a professor say that no good thing in life ever comes without a cost. So if you want that good thing, you need to pay the price. And we can look at our current sufferings, the current struggles that we have to follow Christ, and sometimes we may wonder if it is worth it if it is worth it when we don't see the world changing as fast as we would like, when we evangelize to people and we feel like they're not listening to us, when we try to do the right thing and yet we stumble 
and we go back into our sin. We may ask ourselves, is it worth it to carry that cross? Jesus, in this verse, assures us that it completely is. Now, we, know, we all know that the most profound and personal statements that people have in their home are always hung up in the bathroom, right? In fact, whenever I visit somebody's house, I'll excuse myself, I'll say, can I use your restroom? And I'll go in there. You don't know this if I come over to your house. I will be evaluating what's on your bathroom wall. Because I want to see what your statements are. Maybe it's a cute picture. But often people, will, I, I find, they will put a little phrase up somewhere. They'll put a little statement up. And maybe it's kind of funny. Maybe it's a, an advisory into in how you're going to be doing your, your bathroom work. But sometimes they're, they're actually um, verses and, and mottos and slogans. I, you don't have to come over to my house. I'll actually tell you what's in our bathroom. We have a paraphrase of 1 Peter 1.6 hanging in that hallowed spot right above the toilet so that I have to face it every day. And this, this phrase tells me this. It says, there is wonderful joy ahead. In fact, let me read the full statement from the Apostle Peter. Remember, Peter influenced the book of Mark here. And Peter knew very well that he had to come and carry the cross to follow Christ. Peter said this in, in 1 Peter 1.6. He said, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Peter acknowledges that though even the hardships of Christian walk are currently our step-by-step daily life, we have a great reason to rejoice. We can keep on going, know that at the end of that road, there is wonderful joy ahead. That keeps me going every day, just knowing that we will see Christ fully revealed. Our faith will be tested and will be purified. We will be given new, perfect bodies to live forever. We will not be for want of anything. And whatever we have had to endure in this life, it will be absolutely trivial compared to what we will receive by our bounteous, glorious, wonderful Father. What are the three things Christ calls us to do? Yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. These three steps take us on a completely different path than the rest of the world. They may look at us, they may say, you guys, you are losing out on so much by following that Jesus. You're losing out on fun, you're losing out on happiness, you're losing out on all these sins that will just please you. But we know that when we lose, we keep something forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's such a difficult passage for us to come to and come to grips with. Lord, we don't want to hear that our lives are going to be harder. Sometimes we feel like our lives are already plenty hard. But Lord, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I pray today that you would encourage us and bolster us with this scripture. That we will follow you knowing that it won't be in vain. It won't be without purpose. But it will be for your glory so that other people may be drawn to you. It will be for our own edification so that we will be growing in a Christ-like nature. And Lord, that will just teach us more and more what it is to be crucified with Christ. And so Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the scripture today.
Help us to take it to heart. In your name, amen. Amen. Now receive the benediction. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you would like to speak or pray with an elder, you can come forward after the service. Otherwise, go in peace today.